This is Norman John on BIM and Project Control, where we discuss all things building information modeling, project control, and emerging technologies in the construction industry. Good day, listeners. This is Norm and John on BIM and Project Control. Hey, Norm, how's it going, sir? Can you introduce our guest today? Sure thing, John. Uh, it's another um, good day today for our podcast. And our uh, guest is Mr. Andrew Courtois, proven leader, strategic advisor, non-executive board director, data leadership, and program leader. And he's currently the chair of the Australian Asian Beam Advisory Board, known as ABAB, representing the APCC Australian Asian Procurement and Construction Council Incorporated. Nice to have you, Andrew. Thanks, Norm. Thanks, John, for the introduction. It's great to be here with you today. I hope, uh, I'm looking forward to a great session with you guys, um, and uh, I hope it's of benefit to your listeners. Yeah, we're glad to have you back on the show again. For those listening today, this is round number two. Yep. Andrew is a, is, is a trooper. Uh, we had some technical difficulties where internet cut out, and so he came back online with us again. So we do appreciate your time, Andrew. It's yep. a pleasure, pleasure, John. No problem at all. Yeah, and it's a privilege to have you again, Andrew. I know some of the folks listening to this uh, podcast are going to be excited about hearing more ideas about BIM and how could you be able to collaborate between government, private entities, and uh, agencies. So, yep. And um, if you could introduce more about yourself, Andrew, so that uh, our listeners would have a better uh, idea on your background is. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thanks, Norman. So um, I've come to BIM late in my career. Um, I've had a range of roles in the Queensland government, which is a, a jurisdiction in Australia. Um, but it's, it's a very important role that I'm now playing as the chair of the Australasian BIM Advisory Board. And that board has been set up to drive change across all jurisdictions in um, Australia and New Zealand and to get better outcomes for asset uh, creation, asset delivery, um, and asset management. Now, one of the things we need to do is just look at the role that government plays with, um, also with our um, uh, with industry to get better project outcomes that are more cost effective, that are easier to deliver, and deliver longer benefits or better benefits over their life cycle. So that's the role that um, we play on the Australasian BIM Advisory Board, bringing government and industry together to get the best outcomes for, um, for projects and therefore improvements for taxpayers. Wow. Yeah, I was looking through your background. I mean, this, a lot of these changes happened here in just the, the last year. I mean, that's quite there. Can you give us a little story on like what – what was that dam breach that kind of caused all these movements for you in your career? Sure. Um, in 2016, I was invited by the Queensland government to work on the delivery of a building information modelling policy as part of the implementation of a state infrastructure plan, um, which was quite a good opportunity to look at BIM and what it could do for asset management. Um, as part of that, um, I was... Um, encouraged and invited on to a number of national 
um, boards um, to represent the Queensland government, which was a great privilege. And then um, through through the COVID period in the last 12 months, um, it's become quite clear that um, governments are looking to drive better outcomes through their investment decisions. And um, the APCC invited me to represent it on the Australasian BIM Advisory Board, having previously represented um, the Queensland Government. But the key there was to ensure that we get consistency across Australia. For your listeners, Australia has got about 25 million population, which is pretty small in the world scheme of things. You know, it's a, just smaller than the size of California, really. The other challenge is, of course, it's a very diverse um, uh, economy. And therefore, you've got um, clusters of development occurring on fundamentally the east coast of Australia, but then also um, on the west coast. But it's, it, there isn't a lot of cross-fertilisation across the entire um, uh, country. So what the, the Australian Australasian Beam Advisory Board set out to do was to bring consistency of delivery for BIM or digital engineering to get better outcomes in a post-COVID environment. So we know that governments are investing a lot of money um, in new infrastructure and infrastructure upgrades and improving mm -hmm. assets. And what we need to do is in order to, to do that is to get them to get jurisdictions to embrace that opportunity of changing the way they procure and deliver um, infrastructure. But in order to do that, you've got to have some cultural change. And that's the big challenge, um, yeah. John. Um, that's, that's, that's the big the big chestnut that we've got to try and crack to get good outcomes for um, not only for um, the government side of the, the equation, but also for industry. Because industry are used to doing things a particular way. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and they make money out of it. And good on them. We want to have viable industries, right, who can make money. And change can be hard. Yes, it can. Absolutely. Yeah. But we have a role, I believe, in government and in policy setting to make sure that you change the way for the better that you get good outcomes for asset management and asset delivery. And not looking at just the creation side of the asset or the operation side of the asset, but looking at the entire life cycle of the asset. And that's what BIM really does and why it's so important that we get it right. But in order for industry to invest, they need to have confidence about what they're going to invest in. So what we've tried to do, um, particularly in the Queensland government, and I, and I can send you the link to looking at, to show your listeners what we do at the, in Queensland, but also nationally, we want to provide confidence to invest. So that if you've got confidence to invest, industry will know that if they get a government job, this is the approach they have to take, whether it's you know a $25 million job, a $100 million job, there's a scaling up and a consistency and they'll get good outcomes. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it really needs to come from the owner, no matter if it's a government or a private entity. You know, if you have certain specifications, the people who are doing the work have to meet that. And if they don't, they don't get the job. Simple as that. And yes, there can be innovation without that driver. But like you said, that's a lot of money to invest in these tools because you know these softwares are three, five, ten grand a pop. Sure. But mm -hmm. it's not only that. What you're wanting to do is make sure you get good outcomes for the operation of your asset. Right? That's the really important thing that we're trying to achieve here. And 
the as we all know, and your listeners will know all too well, over the life cycle of the asset, it costs more to operate and maintain the asset than it does to build it. Sure, it might look like a big number when you start building something, but when you look at the life cycle of an asset, which could be 30, 40, 100 years, yep. the cost to operate that asset is considerably more than the cost to build it. So we know for a hospital in um, Queensland or in Australia, mm-hmm. they're in the vicinity of a, a billion Australian dollars, right, to build. You know, sometimes, depending on the complexity, might be 1.5 billion, might be, you know, 1.2 billion. But we know that the cost to operate that is going to be somewhere around three to 400 million per annum, depending, again, on the complexity. Now, your math is as good as mine. It only takes three or four, sometimes five years, and your operating costs have passed the build cost. Your capital cost, yep. yes. Right? So if you're not yeah, getting good outcomes through the build process, which can then improve the outcomes through the operations, you're just wasting money in my view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I saw some of your the uh, documentation that you sent us that um, the operations as far as uh, – productivity i saw that come up a bunch of times in the literature you sent us can you talk about that productivity enhancement and uh you know improvement are are we talking about uh how people work with the building how they look up information that kind of thing john you're absolutely right when you look at um productivity particularly in the construction sector it's basically flatlined for the past 40 50 years there's been small increases there's been you know moving from um, cable, electric cabling um, to battery-operated materials. But fundamentally, mm-hmm. if a carpenter or, or um, a plumber had died in the 1850s, right, and was able to be reborn mm-hmm. or, you know, re-emerged now, they could work walk onto a work site and fundamentally the skills <laughs> that were used 150 years ago haven't changed. Fundamentally, sure, there's organisation and all that yeah. sort of stuff, but the skills haven't changed. I have never really heard it put in that way, but that really does hit home, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, there's productivity gains. You know, it's, the workplaces are safer, and they'd probably be surprised at um, how there weren't as many people employed on the site because of the mechanisation that's gone on. But fundamentally, Correct. the way we built houses and buildings 150 years ago is still the same way. Right. We have- and honestly, I, I seen China. I've, I've, I used to live there, and it's actually like 100 years without the mechanic. It's just labor is so yeah, cheap there, right. you know. So it's like no change there. Absolutely, absolutely. But where we know when you look at the production line that Henry Ford started for the Model T Fords, and you look at the robotics used now to produce vehicles, it's chalk and cheese. You know, when you look mm-hmm. at the mining sector and the way the mining sector. Um, used and disposed of labour. Labour was a small commodity. They went through it, but now they're using much more sophistication because they recognise that every miner's life is precious and they are wanting to ensure that if you go to work, do a good day's work, you go home safely um, from the work site so that you, but you use technology to improve the outcomes. Now, that's what we need to be able to do um, in in you know the the construction sector we have we're starting to look at that we're starting to get mechanization with um so, some uh improvements 
particularly in painting um, and in bricklaying and all that sort of stuff. Um, but really, the skills that we used 150 years ago are pretty much the same as the skills that we have now with a, you know, with a few enhancements. Now, that's great if you're in the yeah. construction sector, but um, mm -hmm. the taxes that people pay need to ensure you get good outcomes. And so in a government policy setting role, I believe that we want to get better outcomes for the future of the operation of the asset so that the cost, yeah, I totally agree. The cost isn't borne by future yeah. generations. Yeah, because like, I think one of the rules that government sh should take you know, to the heart is you're there being a good steward of the taxpayer money and you want to get the most bang for the buck. Correct. Correct. I mean, the role of government, in my view, is to set policy or provide confidence for industry to invest so that it mm -hmm. knows it's going to get a return. What does government want? What do, what do um, national organisations want? They want to have their members or their, um, their jurisdictions certainly um, much better um, supported by government so that they can invest with confidence so that they know that they will get good outcomes. Yeah, you mentioned about policy in the government and how would the government support the um, the implementation of BIM in different industries. So what role does government play in the deliver delivery of BIM? So the role the government plays, Norm, is to really um, provide that the base, if you like, or, or the rules of racing, as one of my friends used to call it. You know, what are, what are you trying to do? What you're trying to do is you're trying to say, here's a consistent approach that you should use. The International mm -hmm. Standards Organization has set up ISO 19650, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. And what that does is that mandates and identifies what investment decisions that companies can make consistent with the approach for the naming and nomenclature of um, information that can be used through the life cycle of the asset. So what we're wanting to do is make sure that, um, you know, we point organisations and business to international standards in the case of Queensland or the case of Australia, because our, um, our, our jurisdictions are so relatively small on the world scale, we don't want to set up a bespoke approach, which then disenfranchises investment by um, national players or international players that want to come and work in Australia. So what we've got to try and do is provide that consistent information, that consistent advice that can then be used by all jurisdictions in Australia. And there are eight separate jurisdictions, which can then be um, engaged with at an international level so that we can have groups like Building Smart promoting the Australian approach, which was consistent with the US approach or a UK approach, you know, with some minor um, local variations, but broadly is, um, understood across the globe because if we can get to that level we can then have labor being able to move freely um, and industry being able to compete on a more equal playing field across all um, all nations um, to deliver good quality outcomes in this capital constrained environment so i think the the, the the role that government needs to play is that setting consistent approaches setting clear advice making investment easy for industry. And so what I hear is you're talking also interoperability of, you know, setting those standards so everything talks to each Correct. other, right? John, we, I mm -hmm. mean, 
when I started out on this approach, um, a number of people said, well, are you going to define what specifically Queensland wants or Australia wants? And I said, no, I don't want to do that. You guys probably aren't old enough to remember, but back in the good old days, there was two, ta two kinds of videotape. The beta version, beta version, which was used uh -huh. you know, at, by television stations, had really good quality picture quality, really good audio quality, and VHS, right? Uh -huh. In Australia, it's probably, I'm not sure what the stats are in the US, but in Australia, the public went for VHS. You know, it was a much cheaper option. It was still good quality. It still had good outcomes, but the market suddenly moved. So beta was left, you know, to the high end, yep. right? But VHS was left to the more consumable end. I'd think, uh, John, that I'd end up picking the um, beta, beta version of video yeah. if I was told to mm -hmm. mandate something. I mean, it would be just our luck that that's what would happen. Oh, yeah. Um, Especially if you come from an engineering background, you know, you want the best um, specifications, stats. So what yeah. does that yeah. do? Then the industry thing. invests a whole lot of money, but if the whole is there's a big shift on, right, and suddenly everyone else is investing in the VHS version of whatever we've been promoting, then there'll be a whole lot of industry uh, organisations or businesses looking at me and saying, what did you mandate that for? So what we've said is whatever investment you make, it has to be intraoperable, right? Intraoperability mm -hmm. is key in all of this. And yeah, because you don't want to lose good consultants and contractors because you mandated something that you're like, I'm not going to make that jump. I'll do my work over here. Correct. I'll make money over Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. What you want is you want a contest of ideas, a contest of approaches. You want a contest of investment so that you get better outcomes for the end product or the consumer, not um, let's pick it, let's back a horse and try and pick it and try and make sure it wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that analogy of the uh, VHS and beta. And just for the record, um, you know, I'm too young to really know what that is, but my you, dad did. Dad teach me history. <laughs> yeah, my dad taught me history. Good man. Hey, I, I, I still got those stocks back from the Philippines. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, and and uh, that's what we've got to try and do. Yep. So, we've got to be thinking, you know, in my view, what are the next evolving technologies that we're going to be using? So, you know, really, when you look at it, BIM has been around and gained currency probably for the last 15 or 20 years in industry. Right in, 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 yeah, in the construction yep. sector, I'm talking. It's probably been there much longer in the aviation sector, much longer in the oil and gas sectors, much longer um, in other sectors. But in the construction sector, it's about the last 15 to 20 years it's gained currency. And actually, say it's a little shorter than that with project controls. Like so, part of our, our, our podcast is BIM and project controls. Yep. So mm -hmm. construction industry, yeah, tw a couple of decades, but. Project controls is just at its infancy here in the states, as far as what I've been exposed to. Yeah, and, and it's in, in, it's in its infancy here in Australia too. But the challenge is, how do we make sure that we don't um, push ourselves or industry down a rabbit hole that we can't get out of through poor investment decisions? Then a whole lot of money gets uh -huh. wasted. You know, we don't want to do that. Capital is scarce, so we don't want to be pushing organizations or businesses down a, the wrong path. 
So rather than mandate or specify our view, my view is that you've got to then make it contestable and interesting um, and get industry working with government to get good outcomes so that you don't end up in a poor um, situation. Yeah, I like that that point of view too, because like you said, that last time we had you on was you don't choke off innovation. Correct. Innovation mm-hmm. is key, and particularly in this space, John. Um, if we choke off innovation, if we don't invest, if we, you know, su- suggest that we are already where, you know, or, or we've come to the end of the line, then we aren't looking hard enough at what the question is or the challenge is. We've got to make sure that we continue to innovate, continue to invigorate industry to get better outcomes and have contestability of ideas. What you, we also want is we've got to see how this, the work that we're doing can impact or is impacted by and can impact things such as climate change. Because the role of the engineer in building sustainable, um, safe communities, which will we will and we will all experience uh, harsher wish, weather conditions, whether it's heat, whether it's storms, whether it's floods, they will all be um, more intense. That's what the climate scientists are telling us. So, what role do we play in making sure that we get good outcomes? Right. So, we need to be um, not stifling innovation, but in encouraging innovation at every step to get good outcomes. And with respect to innovation, uh, Andrew, um, how how extent does the Australian government supports the BIM execution, uh, either on any industry? So, Norm, there's um, a number of different approaches um, uh, across Australia, and that's probably not surprising. Um, New South, the New South Wales government has a slightly different approach to the Victorian government, which is a slightly different approach to the Queensland government, South Australian mm-hmm. government, Western Australian, Northern Territory, South Australia and Tasmania and the Australian Capital Territory. So they're, they're all slightly different, but they're all consistent in the approaches they're looking for in terms of good outcomes. Right. So what we are trying to ensure through interoperability and things like that is, is that we don't create bespoke approaches in each jurisdiction. We want to have consistent approaches so that industry can move as it needs to between different jurisdictions um, and get good outcomes. Um, The Commonwealth government um, divests a lot of its investment decisions to the um, state and territory jurisdictions. And the reason it does that is that it, it doesn't have a, other than defence, it doesn't have a big role in investment. But the defence, uh, the Department of Defence is doing a great job because they're involved in the Australasian BIM Advisory Board. And so they're looking for a consistent approach to bring to the delivery of assets, at uh, defence assets at the national level. So we're very fortunate that, that we have those major players um, contributing, um, and thinking about it and also looking to the future about what outcomes they want to achieve. Yeah, and, and with respect to that um, innovation and then different states, uh, local government, that either Australian or different countries like UK and US have their different ways of prioritizing BIM execution plan. And on that standpoint, people, per, per um, the advantage of the listeners, uh, on this podcast, how would you compare 
the expertise that we have on beam execution between the AEC industry and the life cycle uh, management or facilities management? I think that the AEC industry, um, Norman, does much better than the facilities um, um, management in my experience. And that's because um, facilities managers in that I'm aware of in Australia generally have come out of one of the um, sectors of the construction um, industry. So, for example, a carpenter might become a project manager, might become a facilities manager. A plumber might become a um, overseer, might become um, a, a facilities manager. An engineer who then it does very well in engineering, then gets more work and then moves into the facilities management role because they can see the opportunities of managing the facilities rather than creating the new facilities. But the challenge is that you've got middle-aged men like me in those, um, you know, in those facilities management roles who've always done things a particular way, particularly in government, and they feel that they will get support and funding support perversely sometimes if they end up letting the asset run into the ground, they get a new asset. Mm -hmm. Instead of actually thinking about how we're going to operate the asset um, to the 90th percentile or the 99th percentile to really squeeze every everything we can out of the asset. You know, as one of my colleagues is fond to say, how hard can you squeeze the lemon to make sure you get every drop out of it? So, you know, in the same way that we do facilities, how can we run them, you know, so that we get the maximise the outcomes from the facility um, for the benefit of the taxpayer, but also to deliver public services? Because, you know, a, a hospital, a school, a road, you know, provided by the taxpayer, operated by mm. for the taxpayer, we need to run them as effectively as we can so for the benefit of the taxpayer hey, you don't want to waste their their tax money i agree okay. yeah yeah that's, and that's why you know there, there's questions about over specifying there's questions about gold plating um there's always questions about whether we are um you know investing too much the flip side is we don't invest enough right um and then we end up with things like congestion or a lack of service delivery or people feeling that the um, assets they're operating aren't the best. But the challenge yeah, I agree. The challenge we face in this age, in my view, is the challenge of the smartphone. And the reason I say that is that the smartphone um, comes out, you know, I, Apple, Samsung, Nokia, all bring a smartphone mm -hmm. out every 12, 18 months, two years with the latest, greatest technology and we all ditched our current version and we moved to the new smartphone because it's got be it can do more things than we could with our current one. Yeah. Yeah. With respect to supporting the government, um, we have a, I don't know if you're familiar with the AACE, um, Association for Cost Engineers. Um, it includes planners, schedulers, cost estimator, like John and I. Um, risk value engineering yeah, risk value engineering or value. yeah the yeah. whole nine yards to support the uh how you control scheduling cost and john here um is basically one of the the beam subcommittee leaders right john In yeah I, I currently hold a position as uh ac's bim subcommittee chair mm -hmm. so 
Uh, we, we're working on things like the uh, PPG best practice guides, which is a bunch of white papers, yeah. but we hope to do something similar what Queensland is doing and, mm-hmm. you know, setting out recommended practices. And I, I agree a lot of what you've, you've put in writing, you guys been writing, and that's the interoperability, uh, leaving room for innovation. Yep. I, you know, it's the, I, I liked, I read through that document and I, I liked, it basically it stuck to principles instead of specifications. I mean, for projects, you want specifications, you want a certain level of performance. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, and my uh, experience with like value engineering is typically when you spend the most money at the front end, you save money yeah. on the back. End. So like getting, like I work, uh, I know government agencies that have really hard specifications when it comes to escalators, mm-hmm. but they have to, because if they don't, they'll get um, a subpar uh, escalator there that breaks down, and it's the only way for passengers to get in and out. And then you have upset cu- customers. So a lot of things that drive these prices, not just the life cycle, but the customer experience too. Absolutely. Plus the safety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, I was, I was thinking of the AEC sector in the Australian parlance, which is the architecture, engineering, and construction sector. Um, I recognise, yes, that there are a lot of subcomponents within that sector. Um, but, you know, the other thing that we're also trying to do, and John touched on this, is reduce risk, right? And this is what BIM does yep. really well. What we are trying to do is provide certainty in each project. BIM provides a single point of truth if it's used properly. If it's then warranted between the design, into construction, and then into operation, you then get really good outcomes through consistent information at each stage. So you're reducing mm-hmm. risk. And that's the, that's the biggest, that's the issue that we all talk about. We don't call it risk. We call it variations or we call it challenges or we call it um, a new approach. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is reduce risk so that um, the next uh, construction um, elements or the next um, profession that gets involved in a project can use the information that is generated with confidence that they don't have to go back and recheck everything because they know it will be correct. So what we're wanting to do yeah. with BIM is reduce risk at every point. And John and Norm, I think if we can do that, you will see enormous changes. But it also means that the professions have to share information and the professions have yep. to respect one another. And the reason that's true. And the reason I say that is that, you know, there'll always be a challenge or a tension between a great architect's design, the way the engineer interprets that, and then how the builder or the, the constructor puts it together on site. Um, and that's that's well and good, and it's good to contest ideas. But if we all worked together and all the professions work together, you'll get a much better outcome um, and a much better um, approach in the delivery of the asset. And that comes with time. And also it comes with confidence that between the groups you're working with. So if the architects, um, you know, stuff up, the engineers are going to say, well, we really don't want to work with that group again. And the constructors are going to say, never, we're never going to talk to that group. But if they yeah. can all work in a bit more harmony and get better outcomes longer term, you then build confidence across the entire supply chain to get better outcomes for the delivery of the asset. Yeah. And I want to highlight a few points that you made. You, you said the single source of truth. 
totally agree on that. That's you have all the information in one area, very user friendly. You touch something, you can see the information. But also, too, something I think that's often missed when we discuss risk. So we always talk mm-hmm. about the challenges, the risks. You know, losing money, um, losing time. We don't talk about the opportunities. So risk really should talk about opportunities also. Yeah. So when you're talking about BIM, you're talking about the opportunities to save money, save time, not just avoiding risk and mm-hmm. challenges. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And what and you're you also mentioned- trying to do there is you are wanting to ensure that you can test in a virtual sense what the building mm-hmm. or the asset is going to be subjected to in the real world. And so you can do hundreds of cycles of, um, or thousands of cycles, if you like, of weather testing on a virtual in, in a virtual environment that will take years to actually get tested in the real world. So if, yeah. Yeah, for our listener, if you talk about this scenario, they should go to episode one, digital twinning. Yes. That's exactly what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, that's exactly where where the Australasian BIM Advisory Board is looking to move to. So, the Australasian BIM Advisory Board um, has recently uh, finalised a paper which will go up on our website early in the new year to look at the role that the digital twin will play, um, not only Hmm. as um, a single asset but a collection of assets. How do those assets work together to then? deliver rich information for either investment decisions, government decisions around um, service delivery, or indeed um, to help with things like uh, evacuations in the event of an emergency or firefighting or um, things that, that you know, we all take for granted and we know that you know, good, fire, uh, good firemen understand how to get people out of a bu- burning building quickly. But if we could Mm -hmm. have a model which then assists so that as the fire brigade are coming to a burning building, they know that the fire's on level 23 or level 27, they know exactly where they're going to and how they're going to manage that um, response before they even get onto the site. So if we can use rich information in a number of different ways, you'll get much better outcomes and you'll end up with safety improvements You'll end up with risk reductions. You'll end up with huge opportunities, John, as you pointed out, um, which we the, I can't even begin to imagine over the life of the asset, which will improve outcomes for the operators of the asset um, and the users of the asset. Yeah, and then not only on class detection, like what you said, it's going to be like risk management, especially on the trainings using virtual um, tools right uh, like oculus or um you name it whatever vr tools in there just for the sake of having like a good safety um risk management of any assets at all including the operators no, yep. absolutely That's really great. absolutely you know we've got to be looking at this about how we can improve the not only the design and construction but more importantly the operation of the asset over its life mm-hmm. cycle to get really good outcomes for the users, the facilities managers, to get really good outcomes uh, for the owners of the assets as well. I mean, you know, you don't want to own an asset which is underperforming or you don't know where the issues are. You want to know where the issues are so you can improve the outcomes. Um, and and I think BIM and digital engineering will be able to d- deliver that in spades 
um, you know, once you have that information and you start trusting the information and then using it in your day-to-day decision-making processes. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned about, uh, yeah, we're, we're big on digital tweeting and I've been discussing with John and one of our um, guests, which is Salah Eckhart, um, who was the first guest in our podcast, John? Yeah, right? it, was, it was episode one. That's what I yeah. was. I, I basically talked over our guest there just to throw that plug. But yep, yeah, yep. episode it, one, Sally Eckhart, and it was, and, you know, digital twin is not just construction. Actually, it's used more in mm-hmm. elsewhere manufacturing. And so we're hoping that it's adopted here in construction because, like you said, you can uh, basically mimic how you uh, evacuate a building, but also, too, you know, energy, people use, how you use that building, mm-hmm. life cycle cost analysis and our asset information modeling as i saw on the website you know that's that's why yeah that's why they're they're like kind of pairing the processes uh and also bim that's why it it evolves to digital engineering and then it goes further and being known as a digital twinning so yep and um what are your main challenges uh andrew um with respect to the BIM implementation, not only on the uh, government side, but um, throughout your um, career? Norm, the real challenge is, as we've, we've touched on this a number of times today, is the cultural change, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's getting people to value the data. It's getting people to understand the role that the data can play in the operation of the asset. And that is the critical challenge. Now, the generations which will come through, your children, Norm, you know, the, the younger kids coming through who are using gaming, who are using VR as part of their learning um, experience, they will all start to see much better outcomes um, and will be much more confident about using data um, than perhaps my generation, right? Because the, they use it, we give up so much data freely to places like Facebook or Google, um, or WeChat or TikTok or whoever, um, you yeah. know, but that data and then it gets used to be, you know, marketed back at us, right? In an- yeah, marketing stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, John. But how does that rich data get used to be- make the asset better perform, whether it's for government, for industry, or um, for the broader economic good in society? Right, we've got to make sure that we are looking at cultural change, and like there's changes occurring. Is it occurring quick enough? Probably not. Um, do we need to work, continue to work at it? Absolutely, you know. But I think the big challenge, the next big challenge, will be machine learning and AI, and how that then takes over in data analysis and assists us as humans to get better outcomes for uh, the operation, for the design and construction of the asset, right back through the supply chain that's procuring all the different elements for each each component of the asset, right into the operation of the asset, then through the life cycle of the asset, and then to the um, deconstruction of the asset at the end of its life cycle. So I think that there's a lot more um, opportunities but also, I think that challenge is going to be critical about how we manage that 
And we do, it doesn't mean we start doing everything using AI, everything using machine learning. We have to pilot something. We have to then test it. We have to work it through with industry. We have to work it through with the um, asset owner. We have to get good outcomes that we can share. We have to test that with the university sector, the academics, industry, so that we're all confident about what we're trying to do. But we need to keep innovating and keep challenging and keep moving ahead so that we get good outcomes because the conversation we're having today might take 12, 18 months, two years, five years to suddenly materialize, have the assets materialize in a different form to the way that they are being um, procured today. So, for example, an asset starting on January, to be built on January the 2nd this year, right, it might have had already two or three years or four years of development, research, financing, um, you know, design work, uh, value management, risk management, um, a whole lot of things already underway before the first sod is turned in the ground. So mm -hmm. it takes a long and time to then change the way that we're doing things because the people working on that asset or delivering that asset on January 2 will have been trained through universities or through the workplace over the last you know, five, 10 years. So you can see that the yeah. lag that it, that it, it that the sector creates because it can't be as innovative and as fleet of foot as some other sectors, because fundamentally we don't want buildings to fall down because we want to take an innovative approach, right? We want to make sure that it stays up. We want to make sure the engineering is right, but that doesn't mean we have to slow everything down to a snail's pace. We can pilot things, we can improve things, we can get good outcomes, but yes, we have to, you know be front and center uh, looking at the safety of the delivery of the asset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what I kind of hear as a re reoccurring theme is the government's role or the owner's role as far as, you know, giving confidence in investing mm -hmm. and therefore being that catalyst for that cultural change. That's what I'm hearing yeah. from. And that's absolutely the key message, John, right? I think government's role is to set the principles and the policy, right? And to also... Um, you know, provide confidence to industry to invest because we, we want robust industries. We want good industries. We want good outcomes. We don't want to chop and change the rules of racing to suit, um, you know, a, a political master or a, um, uh, to suit a different outcome. You want to make sure that the industry that making the investment decisions is going to, you know, thrive and grow and really take, take off. But in order to be timely, you know, so once we retire, that next generation has a good foundation to play off absolutely, of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because the assets that we're creating, you know, generally aren't short-term assets, right? When you build an office block, when you build a house, when you build a, a hospital, when you build a new road, it's not there for two or three years, generally, right? Unless, well, so you know. You really shut the direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, we haven't got enough. There aren't enough materials on the earth for us to be recycling or to be, you know, pulling things down as quickly as, as, as that. We want to make sure that the major assets that we create, office buildings, homes, hospitals, um, schools, you know, you name it, um, we want to make sure uh, the road network, we want to make sure that they're there for many, many years to support um, our, life, our lifestyles. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And then you, yeah, you mentioned also the challenges. Like uh, one of them is like main thing is the cultural, right? And do you see that there are challenges also on the resources, not only on tools, but also the resources, the experts that we have right now in the market? Are we able to support the new technologies that are out there for BIM, uh, based on the resources that we have, the engineers, the you know, the designers, the planners, schedulers, cost estimators, you name it. Sure. No, I think look, I think that we probably don't have enough in those professional fields. Um, that there will be real demands on the professions, whether it's engineers, architects, cost schedulers, quantity surveyors, um, you know, risk managers, project managers, all through the life cycle of the asset. I think that there are some real challenges that are coming forward. Um, but equally, there are um, there are challenge there there will need to be people who will be able to use their skills and provide physical labour to um, finish projects. So while we might see um, the creation of modulisation and a whole lot of off-site manufacturing, we'll need to have people putting the elements together. Okay, we'll need to have the plumbers connecting uh, the pipes. We'll need to have the electricians making sure that the electrical wiring is safe. We'll need to have the carpenters finishing off the edges around um, you know, the various elements that are being put together. We'll need to have the bricklayers doing the specialist uh, work that is needed that a machine can't do yet, right? It's not a matter of we're all gonna be you know, filed off and um, allowed to sit back and relax and watch all the machines take over. That won't happen, right? What we, yep. what we will need to do is we will need as individuals, as, as people, to specialise, to innovate, to to show the real skills that we have, um, that we can then ensure that we get a better outcome for the delivery of the asset. Yep, that's true. And with respect to, um, as you foresee the BIM development, uh, BIM towards digital twinning, yep. and the digital transformation of the designs uh, toward either in agencies or private firms or sectors. How do you foresee the beam in 10 years from now? I, I My hope is that um, the conversation that we're having now, they'll say, gee, that was good that they were actually thinking about this stuff because by 2030, it will be so commonplace that we won't be talking about how special beam or digital engineering is, right? That's my hope. Um, whether or not we can rise to that challenge is something that all professions need to question and look at the value that um, BIM or digital engineering provides to the delivery of the asset. So if I went back 20 years to 2000, and we were having this conversation, how quickly would we see things changing? Remember, 20 years ago, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have technology at our fingertips. We didn't have tablets, or we did have tablets. They were things you put in your mouth to make you better, right? But we didn't have we didn't have um, the a volume of information and data that is now at our fingertips that we are in a sense getting bombarded with, but also getting good outcomes to deliver better asset um, information and asset delivery. So um, by 2030, I'd hope that we would be much more mature 
and um, not being uh, not having the questions about well I can't see the value or I don't understand the data or sure you can do that but um, we're going to have to rework it when we get it anyway because that's why the way we've always done it. I'm hoping that in the next decade that we will see tr transformational change and data valued more highly by organisations and by governments and by asset owners and maintainers so that they can really get better value from the assets that have been created. Um, but I also see that digital um, engineering will be delivering the digital twin conversation and smart cities will be, um, you know, they're already starting, but they will be commonplace and we'll be able to use information much more readily to work out where we're going to go in the city, how quickly we need to, uh, how, how uh, difficult it is or, or easy it is to get from point A to point B, um, the, the, the way that the weather's working or, the, or performing in different parts of a city or a country, um, we'll have that at our fingertips, which will mean that we'll be able to be much better prepared for what life will throw at us. Yeah, the thing that you said there that really kind of hit home, what, and I completely agree with is, and I think our third episode with James Bull, the 4D scheduler mm -hmm. says, yep. you know, BIM, like 10, 15 years from now, it's not going to be a big thing. It's just how we do work. How we do work, yeah. It's going to be like a norm where in UCD, they build the uh, the information. Okay, I want to go that way. Um, can I use this HoloLens or, you know, VR tool or what's in there? And what's going to be offered to the clients or customers within that specific um, building or um, you know establishment? So John, you're absolutely right. Yep. John, you're absolutely right. It will be so commonplace that um, you know, in a sense, you'll have done yourself out of a podcast series. You know, you won't be talking about digital engineering anymore. You'll be, we'll be looking at things that have well have moved on enormously, and your series will be focusing on. Um, how the rich data that is generated through the assets can be deliver better outcomes for society more broadly than just talking about individual dwellings or individual buildings. We'll be talking about collections of buildings, um, collections of uh, um, assets across cities. Um, and you know, the experience that we've had during COVID will be able to pick up much more quickly when there are traces of um, a, a, a pandemic-like um, um, influence occurring through the sewage networks um, that might be um, in the water or airborne or wherever they're going to be, um, we will see that information much more readily and that data much more quickly and be able to respond hopefully much more um, quickly and then preserve uh, life much more easily than we have been through this pandemic. Yeah, I think, you know, when we're talking about all these technical improvements, process improvements, the end goal is better quality of life. This is why we do this. this. Is the only reason we do it, John. Um, we are trying to improve outcomes and livability for p people, right? You know, sure, it's all good fun to be looking at BIM and DE, but fundamentally, what are we trying to do? We're trying to improve the outcome of the asset for the delivery of government services or for quality of life reasons or for... Um, you know, delivery of health services or educational services and all those sort of things. We're trying to improve life for everybody. And that's what we shouldn't lose sight of, that we're always trying to get better outcomes um, by investing in technology, by using technology to get 
um, a, make a better quality of life for us, to improve the way that assets deliver services, uh, to re reduce the cost of those services so that we can free up capital uh, to invest in new technologies or indeed in new service delivery um, for the ageing population that, that um, will confront the world in another 10 years. Yeah, how is it? You mentioned about um, partnering with educational institutions, right, Andrew? And how do you foresee the um, the partnership between the government and educational institutions that you are supporting on to um, implement BIM? Norm, I think what we need to do is work with um, all uh, academic institutions, uh, researchers, um, you know, government scientists and say, this is, you know, what do we need to do to get good outcomes for your students, for your research? How does uh, the policy settings that we are um, proposing, how do they help you better understand asset delivery from an academic point of view? So we mm -hmm. need to be working at all levels. We need to work, the government needs to work with industry, the government needs to work with academia, and equally, academia needs to work with government and academia needs to work with industry. And importantly, industry needs to work with government and academia to get good outcomes, long-term outcomes, because we're all in this together, right? We can't just say it's our, it's our responsibility or it's their responsibility. It's our collective responsibility. We need the best and brightest working on the approaches. We need the best and brightest in um, academia, challenging government policy, challenging the way that industry does it. And we need industry saying, that's all well and good guys, but you know, have you thought about the unintended consequences of what you're proposing? You know, think about you know, improving your policy position or improving your principles to get better outcomes. So it's not a set and forget, it's about how we work collectively to get good outcomes whether you're in academia, whether you're in um, industry or whether you're in government. We're all in this together. Um, 2020 has shown just how interconnected we all really are. And I think that the BIM DE experience shows how we can get better outcomes for um, the asset delivery, asset creation, uh, uh, firstly, obviously, and then asset delivery and asset operation over the life cycle. And if we can do that, we will have much better outcomes that we can all enjoy. Well said. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And based on based on your experience on different podcasts like ours, ours is like kind of kind of hybrid, right, John? Uh, because we're 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 focusing on a project delivery. We're in project controls and BIM are integrated. That's why we came or we decided to have this podcast in order for our listeners to better understand where we're at on BIM and then on project controls also, because project controls are always set on the side, but currently right now and applying the 4D BIM planning, it's it's been a great thing to, to have an advancement on the scheduling cost, um, especially integrating the, the class detection, the risk that you mentioned about integrating cost and schedule and for the stakeholders to realize the best potential of BIM to the projects. Yeah, project controls is kind of an always, in my opinion, underestimated, not just in BIM, just in general. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, too, I think BIM had to mature to a certain level 
with technology for us to piggyback onto that technology. So basically that foundation had been put in place. So, you know, there's a lot of associations and standards written on interoperability yep. and how you do the 3D model. Um, and now it's time for us as project controls to advise the industry at large. And so that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's why I'm getting involved at mm-hmm. the my association level to help shape yep. that because I'd rather help shape that than uh, not be part of that and do what's Basically, the whole collaboration, more minds involved means better product. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it means a lot because like what we're having here is pretty much like all volunteers, you know, because we're concerned about the advancement, um, not only by the tools, the standards, and having Andrew here voicing out the, um, the support or the expertise that he had gained on the government um, standardization of BIM is truly important for all of us, especially if agencies, different agencies would hear the podcast uh, and also different uh, big contractors and also different um, public entities, right, Andrew? That's right. Look, you know, we sort of covered just before, Norm, we're all in this together, um, but each, each component plays an important role, right? And we need to respect those roles, but we need to have... Um, you know, we, we look to governments at different times to set the rules of racing so that we know how the game is going to be played, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we end up where um, we, are, we don't have rules, we don't have um, agreements in place, um, and it becomes a free-for-all. Now, that can work to a point, but where the safety and the security of the operation of the asset gets involved... Um, and then the the users intersecting with that, right? We need to make sure that that the user experience is a safe and secure experience for the benefit of those users, because ultimately we don't want to have a safety incident or a concern um, or a challenge um, where someone has substituted um, materials or or where. Um, BIM has not been used to its full extent to get good outcomes. Um, that's that's so important. The safety and the operation of the asset is key because you want to give the public confidence to use it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, the thing I think you mentioned there that I really liked was get the agreements in place because mm-hmm. our industry construction is highly confrontational and siloed and you need actual contract language to bring everyone together, because if you don't, it, it's it's going to really hinder the process. Absolutely, yeah. John. I mean that that's the, the key thing, um, and it starts back in the procurement phase. So you need to make sure the procurement plan is really sound um, and builds confidence around the asset you're going to del- to deliver. If we can do that. Um, we are moving forward and we are getting closer to good outcomes. It's not going to be perfect. I get that. But we want to make sure that we get good outcomes um, for every um, element involved in the design, construction and operation of the asset. Now, have you actually seen any contract methodologies that work best with BIM and and, uh, communication and cooperation? Yeah, look, there there are some. The UK has got some good... um, uh, some good methodologies such as NEC4. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but I can certainly provide um, a link for your listeners. 
Um, yes, the, you know, it, we are we are challenging the way that um, the contractors work in um, the contractual space, right? We are, uh, BIM and um, lean construction and those elements are really important to get uh, improvements across the the design, construction, and operation of the assets, right? Um, and if you look at the way that you improve the supply chain and in, improve the contract management, you'll get better outcomes longer term. Um, I'd encourage your listeners to look at NEC4 that the UK has set up. Um, sure, it's not, nothing's perfect, but it comes pretty close to assisting in the delivery of the asset when combined with BIM and when combined with lean construction. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll definitely look that up. Yep. And NEC4, if you don't mind, Andrew, did it came from UK project delivery? That's right. So okay. it's a UK, a UK um, government um, uh, approach. Um, and so the, the UK um, have been leaders um, in not only in BIM, but in lean construction and in contract management. Um, and we and mm. I'm firmly of view, Norm, that we don't have to... Um, you know, recreate the wheel every time we look at this, right? Yep, that's true. You know, we need to build mm-hmm. on the expertise that's there. We don't need to go back to tours and say, okay, what do we think we should do again, right? We need to get good outcomes, We, but we also need to build on the experiences um, and the approaches of others who've walked this path before us. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is actually like what you guys are doing is documenting it if you don't document your lessons learned they are just lost to history yes that's exactly right and history will record that we will make the same mistakes again and again and again if we don't learn right if you don't get ourselves and basically tell our stories and heed these warnings correct Mm -hmm. um you know we should be in a learning environment we should be in an environment that encourages um new ideas but also builds on the experiences of the past, not recreates every experience we've had to have. And I liken it to this. When, my, when I was little, my mum told me not to touch the hot plate, not to touch the hot plate. Um, and for a long time, I didn't touch the hot plate because I you know, respected mum. But one day when she wasn't looking, I thought, I wonder how hot this hot plate is. Oh, let me just see. I'll touch it. Ow! Mm-hmm. And I realized that mum was right. But why did I have to do that? Because I had to experience it myself to find out how right mum was. Now, Norm, I'm sure your daughters are perfect and they do everything that you tell them and, (laughs) you know, there's no issues. But you can see the challenges when we all touch the hot plate, right, Um, throughout the construction sector or throughout the design industry or throughout the risk management sector doesn't matter which part of the construction um, pie you're in if we end up making the same mistakes it takes time and we don't progress as fast as we could yeah and not only that yeah and not only that it's just like like what john said time and money and then investment on how would you be able to entice people to do the same that we're doing it right now and make it a possibility in order to you know coordinate uh, as much as we can in order for us to relate this kind of important technology to our listeners for now. Absolutely, Norm. And the other thing too is that's why we contract or we don't um, 
embrace new opportunities because we don't we are scared of making mistakes and we know mistakes cost money mm -hmm. so yeah. what we need to do yeah. is we need to be able to if we're going to fail fail fast but if we're going to learn learn quickly that's true well said well thank you andrew um really do appreciate it for a wonderful podcast for for yeah. tonight and i think what time is it in australia right so now just one o'clock in the afternoon but i'll let you guys go to uh enjoy uh you know your i hope it's not too cold where you are um you know as you get get ready for a night yeah but i i envy you that you will be you you were able to bike today with such goal in your life right yeah yeah, yeah. so it's <laughs> yes it's been lots of fun Yep. You're doing a bunch of miles. What's this for? Uh, so um, I'm a cyclist, um, and uh, the there's a a challenge that goes across the world called the Rafa Festive, which is set up by the cycling mm -hmm. um, clothing company Rafa. Um, and the fest oh, right. festival is, of cycling is ride 500 kilometers or 360 miles between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. So I've just clocked up 330 kilometers in the last five days. I had a day off yesterday too, which was good fun. Um, but I've also, mm -hmm. you'll be pleased to know that I've driven in that time to celebrate um, the Christmas holidays in Australia. I think I've driven over a thousand kilometers as well. So it's been um, a, a, big, uh, a big week of travel. Yep, wow. that's great. It's a good exercise awesome. too, I bet. And it's kind of indulging. I, I tried uh, go biking, but then again, it needs an approval for the wife to do it and it's a time dedication so yeah yeah no you see how he's blaming his wife and not that you know it's just no she's <laughs> a good one do that that you face norm that i don't is that uh all my kids have grown up and left home and um that's right you know, they're, so they're, they're not really worried if i go for a ride in the morning at five o'clock um uh-huh but uh, at at home, if uh, your daughter gets out of bed and uh, where's dad? Oh, he's out in a ride. That won't go down as well as, um, no, he's here to make me breakfast. Yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, making me breakfast, playing dolls. You know, we plan with all of our Christmas present. We got a marble run, so that's been great fun. Basically, yeah. I'm getting the toys that I want to play with. And I mean, yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> Guys, thanks very much for your time and uh, yeah, for inviting you. me along. It's been really great to chat with you. Yeah, awesome. same here. It's our privilege. Thanks. <laughs>